Welcome to Nostrum, the debate soap opera, where deontology is more than just an idea, it's a rebuttal by Jules O'Shaughnessy and the Nostrumite. Before we get going, we do like to remind you that just as Jules and the Nostromite began writing these episodes at the beginning, you should begin listening at the beginning. All of our previous episodes are available at www.jimmenick.com. I would advise you to pull up a chair as we read from the epistles of St. Jules to the Foreign Sicians. First, to the LD List server, which was the recipient of the original epistles. Nostrum continues, and the Messerschmitt Messoforensics finally ends on the flight home from Miami at, and then is given the URL. We almost didn't make it this week, primarily because right before I logged on to post the new episode, I was setting up the VCR to record this week's Star Trek Voyager. The Nostromite has a serious thing for the character referred to in one of the ads as part Borg, part human, all woman. When, lo and behold, Jeopardy came on, and one of the categories was Hittite Hodgepodge. Whoa, this was obviously not Celebrity Week. So, that killed an unexpected half hour. Of course, even the fact that he knew that Ramses II was Egyptian, I mean, let's face it, my cat knows that, the Nostromite is in a state of permanent depression over his new job at the meatpacking plant. The good news is that at least he's management. The bad news is that apparently animals are herded in one door of the plant in a literal menagerie, cows, pigs, sheep, armadillos, peccaries, you name it, and come out the other end as hot dogs. The mite's job is to make sure that the weight of the menagerie going in equals the weight of the hot dogs going out. Usually they lose about 5% in the processing, but two days ago they gained 20%. This is not good and the mite had to put in a lot of overtime trying to get to the bottom of it to no avail, which meant that he wasn't able to read as much as he wanted of the pirated copy he received of the manuscript that purports to be a translation of the journal of a trader who preceded Marco Polo traveling to China. The mite knows a couple of people in publishing, if you're wondering how he gets special privileges. You might have read about the controversy over this book, where some readers have questioned if our traveler could have truly seen what he saw, or be so interested in affairs de coeur, as you might say. The translator, quite a legitimate fellow, it would appear claims that perhaps he just made a mistake or two in his translation, but the Nostromite strongly feels that the reference to heliports should have been a dead giveaway to one and all that something was amiss. Anyhow, I recommend that you avoid hot dogs for the next few months, signed Jules. And there is some assorted correspondence, first from Armadillo to juliecbs at aol.com. Nostrum, although it's spelled N-O-T-R-U-M, Notrum. This is a very minor point, but you guys kind of sort of in a very minor and completely pointless way screwed up but as an eerie amount of my life is built around pointing out minor and insignificant screw-ups to people I must mention it nonetheless. 
Specifically, you forgot to erase the one from the next installment due line. So it reads October 18 instead of October 8. But anyways, the armadillo, a.k.a. Ian, says, uh, exactly. Dear Ian, a.k.a. the armadillo, Things at Nostrum World headquarters have not been going well lately. The Nostrumite came home today from a long day at the meatpacking plant, threw his briefcase at the cat, collapsed onto the couch, and uttered vulgarities which I won't repeat. As a prelude to his announcement, lips that touch meat will never touch mine again. Turning assorted mammals and the occasional marsupial, not to mention a 5% allowance for insects and other items that sort of fit in with those vulgarities I didn't wish to mention, into hot dogs has made the poor fellow an unwell man. And then what happens? Someone sneaks into the website when we're not looking and, first of all, claims to find an error. We are shocked, shocked at the possibility. If you were really good at errors, you'd go back and reread the whole thing and realize that these characters are about as stable as a U-238 isotope, but that's neither here nor there. What bothers us, however, is not our humanity, nor that the word nostrum is now spelled notrum, nor that there is such a thing as an Avery minor point, as in A-V-E-R-Y, which is how Ian has spelled it originally, rather than A space V-E-R-Y, an Avery minor point. We were always Tex Avery fans ourselves, if that's what you're getting at. Nor that crossword puzzles no longer have to define eerie, spelled E-E-R-Y, as Ian spelt it, as a variation of E-E-R-I-E. Nor that nonetheless, N-O-N-E-T-H-E-L-E-S-S, has divorced its three components into separate entities, but that someone of your obvious abilities to point to the errors of others wasn't able to recognize that it's not a one, it's a backslash. Someday we'll have to explain to you how to read source HTML. The good news is the collected letters of Jules the Apostate will not print your name or the email address of your glass house. We're not mean, only realistic. I'm sorry, Ian, but you're playing in the big leagues now. Um, exactly. Jules. Uh, subject, Rerunostrum, from Armadillo to juliecbsatawl.com. Uh, sorry, I meant no offense, really. I just lead a boring and insignificant life and have to put some excitement into it somehow. In any case, I love Nostrum, particularly when it is spelled with an S in it. I was just getting my yucks, really. And thank you to yourself and the Nostrumite for confirmation as to what exactly is in those, quote, hot dogs. People keep trying to stuff down my throat. Signed, Ian. Re, 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 Nostrum. Ian. There's too many re's in this message. We here at Nostrum headquarters have to admit that we were feeling a little down after answering your last message because, well, we get a little carried away. It's not that we don't appreciate criticism, far from it. The Mite and I spend pretty much every waking hour criticizing each other. It's just that, well, your message, like so many others we see, was lacking in the basic grammar of which we know you are capable. And we do feel it is important to draw a line in the virtual sand early before the entire art of the written word goes out the window. And, of course, no life can be considered either boring or insignificant if measured against the existence of the Nostromite. He's now wearing a tie every day and loving it. The job is going to his head, or at least his neck. He's driving me crazy. Signed, Jules. Next message from Ermagal. You might remember her. Subject re hi to Julie CBS. Julie, hey, I would be so honored to be added to your cast of characters. Just thought that you should know, though, 
I have had various songs with the name Maria sung to me since I was like five. My friends know that if they start singing that one, Maria, 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 I just met a girl named Maria, they will become seriously hurt. My teachers seem to think it is amusing to torture me with the song and their voices by singing that song anytime they see me. So if your debater goes crazy at the sound of that song, well, I'm sure someone else out there will be able to relate, and I know that I will be relating. Love you guys. Signed, Maria. Reply is, Maria, how do you stop a wave upon the sand? All right, never again. We promise never to bombard you with cliches, either in person or in nostrum. Although we reserve the right to teeter on the brink of cliché on a regular basis. You might wish to change your name to Jenny, which seems to be Kurt Vile's favorite, or Joanna, or Joanne, the Sondheim pick hit, if West Side Story no longer blows your whistle. As you can see, the Might and I are big musical fans. He can hum all the songs from Flora the Red Menace, while I can whistle all the airs from that infernal nonsense pinafore. Anyhow, just between us, the next new character, aside from the clerics coming up Wednesday, has the first name Disney which means that, counting Cartier, we now have two characters named after stores on New York's Fifth Avenue. We're considering naming our next new character either Flat Iron or Roy Rogers, signed Jules. And with that under our belt, we turn to episode 34. One to hold the bulb, and five to twist the ladder. All good things must come to an end. So too must bad things. Excruciating things, exhilarating things, baffling things, obsessive things, and inconsequential things. Not to mention speech and debate tournaments, which collect all those things and more into two or occasionally three short days. Now then, therefore, like all things, concludes the Miami Messerschmitt Mesoforensics. At 11.30 p.m., Okeechobee Air's Flight 800 has reached its cruising altitude of 30,000 feet. The flight attendants have long since finished demonstrating how to transform the meal tray into a jet ski in the unlikely event that the plane might land somewhere in the Bermuda Triangle, and the pilot has turned out the cabin lights, and by rights everyone should be quiet, half asleep at least, after a brutally long two days of competition. Right. When someone has been wired up for at least 40 hours, turning off the, like a light switch is not an option. So the Northeast contingent gathered together on Okeechobee Air 800 is bouncing off the walls, or at least bouncing as much as one can off the sides of an airplane in flight. Students are sitting on armrests and laps and floors and tray tables, and one or two are even trying to squeeze into the overhead luggage compartment. The noise level is set at stun, and one can barely hear the drone of the engines above the voices. Mr. Lopat was correct in his prediction that a half an hour from now most of these people will be unconscious, but that half hour will be a long time in coming. How many obamashes does it take to screw in a light bulb? Chip Dwindle asked Rio Goldbaum. They're sitting next to each other playing chess. Don't be silly, Rio responds, having heard this joke seven times already. Obamashes don't screw light bulbs. Unbelievable, Chip says. He is still wearing the Farnsworth debate uniform of blazer and chinos. Maybe they're painted on. If you ever wondered what coaches do while we're in rounds, when they're not judging, now you know. Griot takes one of Chip's pawns. Hey, man, I don't think all of them are exactly taking falling doves into the local hourly rate motels, he says blandly. Uh, look at some of those people. 
Chip lifts himself up to look over the seat back in front of him, and he can see Mr. Lopat facing in his direction and talking to Alita Devins. Ms. Devins is looking grimmer than a dead moose, as not one of her students placed in finals. A travesty, she announced loudly while they were waiting to board the plane, and one assumes she really means it. Chip slips back into his seat. They're not getting it for free, I'll tell you that. Come on, they're not getting it, period, Grio says. Welcome to the Bahamas. Needless to say, the subject of Seth B. Obamash's arrest has been hot among the students since awareness of it first started to spread in the early morning. The concern expressed in the coaches' meeting that day has become real. There will definitely be a student backlash against their accompanying adults, at least in a real lessening of respect for the coaches as a group. It may pass, but it'll take time, and it'll be tougher on some students and some coaches than others. Tara Petskin and Bill O'Connor are sitting in the last seat on the left side of the cabin, behind the rest of the Veil of Ignorance contingent. They, of course, are the students directly affected by the incident, the ones bearing the indirect mark of Cain, and so far they have had the least to say about it. Tara is sitting with her Messerschmitt trophy in her lap, staring off into nothingness. Usually she tosses her trophies to Obamash to carry for her, a private joke between them, as if she really didn't care about taking the tin at the end of the day. This trophy she hasn't let go of since she accepted it. This one does mean something to her, but by looking at her you can't tell what, and you wonder if she can tell either. In their still-wired ways, each group of students has its own way of returning to reality. The policy teams, which have gravitated with Vale to the rear, are still very much engaged in understanding their rounds. Since they debate only one topic a year, that topic quickly takes on a life of its own. At the first tournament, certain arguments are presented and some of them win and some of them lose. At the next tournament, the losing arguments are gone, some of them completely, some of them merely transformed in hopes of creating a winner. The previous winners are back in force, often in the hands of the possessors of last week's losing arguments. And many of the winners are back, but also transformed, presumably strengthened for their re-entry into battle. And finally, there are the totally new arguments, which at this point in the evening have now taken their places in the winning-losing categories. Every single policy debater knows which arguments won, which ones lost, and which ones drew. Now they're all analyzing these results, and already beginning to lay their plans for next week. In the middle of the plain of the Eldeers, their arguments have had similar lives of win and loss and transformation, but they will never argue this topic again. A new one awaits them at their next tournament, and they can shake this one off forever, or at least until next year, when it marginally resurfaces with slightly different wording. So the Eldeers are the first to withdraw from the hot wiring of the competition. Some of them, like Rio Goldbaum and Chip Dwindle, play games like chess or even spades, where somehow four students find a way to create an in-air virtual bridge table despite the lack of space, comfort, or flat surfaces. Most of the Farnsworth team is huddled around one area, rooting their favorites on in a hot game of you-don't-know-jack on someone's laptop computer. A few other LDers are reading or simply listening to headsets. This group will be the first to slip into unconsciousness. Lastly, the species have loosely congregated in the front of the plane. Since they are the theatrical contingent, they act theatrical. Or at least some of them do, that is, the dramatic interpreters and their ilk. 
The Brooklyn Behemoth duo team is standing in the aisle performing the piece that won them last year's New York State Championship. It's a comic take from Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and the other students are laughing and applauding and generally cheering them on to ham it up dreadfully, which they do with unabashed glee. William Hand is right in the middle of this, applauding with the rest of them. David Brillig is sitting half a plane away, staring out the window at the blackest night, still feeling murderous toward his partner. And speaking of relationships, had Fleece and Cartier Diamond have managed to find the balcony, so to speak, where they are making out like barnyard livestock on the first warm day of spring. No one pays any attention to them, and they likewise pay no attention to anyone else. Well, maybe that's not true, because Jasmine Maru can see them out of the corner of her eye, and no amount of trying to concentrate on her calculus textbook can distract her from their goings-on. At one point, Had opens his eyes, and he and Jasmine exchange a glance, the meaning of which neither understands. And in another corner of the cabin, Tarnas Jutmal is softly laying out his plans to Dan Ryan. The thing is, Jutmal says, if night and day drops to bait, that'll be the end of it. They'll never start it up again. The voters barely ever pass the school budget to begin with. A couple of times, for that matter, they haven't passed it, and it's had to be redone and voted on all over again. Would you really quit night and day? Ryan asks. If Vale would hire me, maybe I would. I'm seriously thinking about it. But you've been in nighting for years. What about your pension, your benefits? I wouldn't lose that much. I could roll them over. What about tenure? At my age, I don't worry about tenure. I'll be retiring soon enough anyhow. But they'd hire you at bottom dollar, starting levels. You couldn't live on that. There's only me at home to support Dan, no other responsibilities. I, I probably could live on it. Well, there's no certainty that Vale will even hire anybody. Who knows what'll happen now? I doubt if they'll keep Seth on, at least not as a coach traveling with kids. And they've got a long debate history, and they're not going to want to sacrifice it. Ah, but Tarnish, think about it. They're primarily a policy team. You've never been a big policy coach. I've done it, and I can do it again. Plus, it wouldn't be a bad idea to broaden out the Vale team, maybe introduce them to speech and LD. Ah, they've always had p great policy teams tarnish. Speaking for myself, I'd hate to see that jeopardized. You think I'd jeopardize their success? I don't know, would you? It's something to think about. I don't think that would be a factor, Dan. I really don't. Ah, then what about your knighting kids? You'd just abandon them? It wouldn't be me abandoning them. The school board is doing that. I'm not a part of their decision at all. Ryan shakes his head. I don't know, he says. After all these years of you at Knighton, and then suddenly not there anymore, it's it'd be hard to accept. It's harder for me than it is for you, Dan. I know it, Tarnish, and I promise you, you have my support, whatever you decide to do. There is one Obamash issue that no one in the coterie of coaches has spoken about yet. Seth B. Obamash is the district chairman of the Northeast NFL. While this position does come with its share of work, primarily when the time comes to organize the district's annual tournament, it also comes with more than its share of prestige, at least as far as the other coaches are concerned. It's an elected position voted for by the member coaches in the district. Before Obamash held the position, Mr. Lopat had been chairman. The only reason he is no longer there is because he was nominated to a position with the national organization and could no longer serve as district chairman as well. Because Obamash was at the time Mr. Lopat's protege, it was tacitly understood that he was also Mr. Lopat's choice for his own replacement, and he ran for election unopposed. 
but that was a while ago. And things have changed since then. For one thing, Mr. Lopat is no longer affiliated with the NFL in any capacity, a retirement taken by his own choice. And at the moment, he has no protege, only an assistant, Lisa Tort, who would not be a serious candidate for the NFL position. But what about the others? Alita Devins would have liked to run for the position last time, but she was resigned to the fact that she could never garner more votes than Mr. Lopat's chosen successor. Dan Ryan, king of Northeast Tabbing, is due to rise to public acknowledgement. The only thing mitigating against him is his forsworn position against speech. But that position is no more adamant than Alita Devins' forsworn position against policy. Tarnas Jutmal ought to naturally inherit the mantle of grand old foreign in the district, but Jutmal may soon be out of debating altogether. And who knows what lusts and passions lurk in the minds of Renata Screeds or Ahadjel Sworn. What is the joke? How many debate coaches does it take to screw in a light bulb? Answer policy division, one. But first he has to have his A-team explain the turns to him. Answer LD division, one. But first the light bulb has to sign a social contract. Answer speech division, the questions we must ask are, what is a light bulb, and why would we want to screw it in? Take two steps to the right. For my first area of analysis, and so Okeechobee Air Flight 800 speeds home to the northeast. Soon most of the students will be asleep, or at least until they hit some turbulence over Louisville, Kentucky, when they all wake up and begin praying to their various gods and guiding spirits to let them through this in one piece. And it will be back to school for all of them on Monday, and life will go on as normal. Or at least as normal as it can be for a foreign Sishian. Will Tarnas Jutmal go to work at Vale of Ignorance? Will Alita Devins become the Northeast NFL District Chairman? Will New Yorkers ever get a team back to the Super Bowl? Is George W. Bush still the president? Are you sure this is how Dickens got started? By now, you know better than to seek the answers to these questions in our next episode. Grits. Southern Delicacy or Sneak Preview of the Apocalypse. <laughs>